Um, thanks, Gary. The, uh, can you... Well, if, uh, if you have your Bible with you today and um, want to follow along, we're gonna be, I'm going to be doing two separate things. Um, but um, I'd, I'd love you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where we will end up um, this, this discussion. And I was talking with Chris and um, arranged that uh, this week I would have the chance to teach um, one of the things that I wanted to address is something that I used to teach in my senior Bible class. And um, for years, the kids at Desert told me, uh, Mr. Harry, you need to write a book. And I went, well, I'm not a writer. And, you know, I, I, I love teaching and I, I do well at that, but I'm not a writer. And they said, but Mr. Harry, you need to write a book. And... Um, uh, thanks to Dave Drum, uh, I met a guy here in town who helps people write their books. And what I'm going to be talking about this morning is a small portion of the book that I've actually gotten written. Now, that doesn't sound like much to most people, but uh, growing up, I went to 13 schools from first to 12th grade. We lived in five states and one foreign country. I had everything in education thrown at me and I never learned how to write. I, I, I like to tell people that I did graduate in the top 75% of my high school class. <laughs> so I was right up there with all of the, the eggheads. Um, so this, this thing of getting a, something down in print in a book uh, is mind-boggling to me. Uh, and I say that, that if you, you know, are interested in what we talk about this morning and want a fuller view of it, uh, you can actually get it on Amazon. You just type in my name and it'll, it'll show up there. And then I, if you're you know, brave enough, and I would be very grateful if you read it, when you find the heresies in it, write me the angry letter and we'll go from there. Okay, I'm going to start with this. Uh, my topic is the issue of sin and pain. And the subtitle is this. Uh, what do you do with your pain? Uh, this is a question that has uh, grown on me over the last 20 years. Uh, there's a wonderful redemption movie called The Spitfire Grill. Um, if you've never gotten it before, I would really encourage you to, to get it. It's a story of a young lady who's in prison for manslaughter, and um, she's served her time. She comes out but in the midst of the story, she moves to this small town called Gilead in Maine. Uh, and she's trying to resettle. And she's up against all of the problems of resettling. And she is working with this older woman in this grill. She, the older woman owns the grill. And the older woman has a very severe accident and breaks or shatters her leg. And in the process of convalescing, on this, this young girl is helping one evening to put some salve on her wound, and she asks an amazing question. She says, do you think that the healing of a wound 
might be as painful as the wound itself. And I was blown away by that question. Because we have a tendency to think that when we get wounded and we're in pain, that we like to say it in, in, in our American proverbs, that time heals all wounds. Well, I'm here to tell you that is not true. Time does not heal wounds. Um, and if you're hoping for time to heal a wound, you're uh, going to be sorely disappointed. So it raises this question, what do you do with your pain? What, what, what do you do with it? Well, there's two points that I think are key to wrestling with that question. And the first is this. And it is the idea, we can go to the next slide, that there is a human problem. Uh, if by this point you haven't figured it out here on, on planet Earth, uh, there is a problem with us human beings. And there are a great many worldviews that address the issue of what is the cause of the problem for people. And you go back to Rousseau, and he thinks it was the problem with humans was an institutional thing, and it was ignorance. And that is the source of the problem. But the scripture is really interesting in addressing that issue. And this is one that we've heard it a lot, but uh, I'd like to address this from a little different perspective and hopefully get you thinking in answer to that question, what is the problem with us people? What is going on? And I'm going to string together three verses. Uh, I love how Paul did it in Romans. Um, he, uh, it, it, the, the theologians talk about stringing pearls, that Paul would go to verses and he would string a set of verses together to make a point. Well, there's three that I want to string together this morning to talk about the human problem. And the first comes out of Proverbs 28, verse 26. And there's the, uh, the verse up on the screen. I'll read it to you. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. I'm going to go full stop there because that is the interesting statement. I, I've read the book of Proverbs a few times. And um, it was about 15, 16 years ago I was reading it. I came across this verse and the Spirit of God opened my eyes to see something and realize something that I had never done before. I had always read Proverbs as the book on wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Proverbs was teaching us about what is wisdom. And I completely overlooked the aspect that Proverbs actually defines for us what is the opposite of wisdom and who is a fool. And there's the statement. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. I mean, this is, um, this is very interesting. I, 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 and I know, I know this is now getting dated, but uh, many of you probably seen the movie Titanic. And the great scene in Titanic, the one they love to show, of the young lady standing on the bow of the boat with her arms spread wide and her lover behind her and her lover saying, trust your heart. And I saw that movie and I about threw up <laughs> at that point. And I went, I, she should have said, get thee behind me, Satan. 
Because the scripture is, is clear that if you trust in your own heart, you're a fool. You're the opposite of being wise. Well, that word trust, and I love this in, in the English language, there are a lot of synonyms for trust. So I'd like you very quickly to turn to the person next to you and see if you can rattle off a few synonyms to the word trust. Go. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I've got a small list coming up, and I'm hoping maybe some of those are ones that were brought out to you. To trust is to rely upon. So let's put it in the context of the verse. The person who relies upon their own heart is a fool. Another one, to depend upon. The person who depends upon their own heart is a fool. Third, the person who believes in their own heart is a fool. Fourth, the person who has confidence in their own heart is a fool. Now, there are other synonyms, but what I'm hoping you're starting to catch, it is a very interesting statement by the God of the universe that when we as human beings put confidence, reliance, dependence, and trust in our own understanding of things, we become fools. Boy, this is interesting in light of modern American education. Because the primary goal is to create self-esteem. Confidence, dependence, trust, reliance upon yourself. And if the scriptures are true, we are producing a nation of fools. We are becoming even more foolish because we depend upon ourselves. So that is the first of the pearls. Then it follows with this verse out of Jeremiah 2. One of those verses that I don't find lots of people love to put into their memory pile. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. It's interesting. God is saying to Israel, we have committed two sins. This is after the Ten Commandments. He's not saying you've committed ten sins. We've all done that. But in reality, the breaking of the Ten Commandments falls back to these two sins. And the two sins are this. One, we have forsaken God. When we were living in Kenya, we had friends down in Tanzania near uh, Arusha by uh, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. And uh, they invited us to come down and visit them for a week. And Susie and I and, and the boys went down to visit them. And we were staying with them, and after about two or three days, they said, hey, we want to take you to one of our favorite picnic and swimming spots. So grab your swim trunks, and let's, let's go for a day. Now, swimming in East Africa has its challenges. 
if you swim in rivers, uh, you always have to be on the watch out for crocodiles or hippos. Um, so most people don't swim in rivers, or those that do uh, cease to exist rather rapidly. Secondly, nobody swims in lakes, because in the lakes of East Africa, in the mud around the lake is a small snail, microscopic snail, that comes in through bare feet, gets in your bloodstream, and resides then in your liver, and causes a disease called Belhartsia, which is incredibly difficult to diagnose and really messes you up. So most people don't go swimming. So when our neighbors said, you know, let's go swimming, we're, really, you want to do this? And they said, no, no, this is a really good place. So we drive out into the wilderness. We're driving out across the savannah, and there's this gallery forest. And we drive up into this forest, and we come into this thing over the trees, and there is this hole in the ground that is about the size of this third of the sanctuary. It's a rectangle. It's 18 feet deep. And on one side of it is this huge boulder, and coming out from under the boulder is crystal clear water. It is a, it is a spring. And it is gushing water into this huge pool, and the current of the pool goes out the other side and exits into a small river that flows away. And I'm literally 18 feet down. You can see the things on the bottom like you're looking through a clear window. Anybody, you dive down to go get them. It's, you're, you're going down deep to go down and get it. But the other amazing thing is the water was 89 degrees. It was a hot springs coming out. It was an amazing afternoon there because you could float with the current to one end and then swim easily against it play in it for hours. You didn't get cold. And I think of this verse where God likens himself to that spring. We've committed two sins. We have forsaken God who is a spring of living water. I think of that place for thousands of years the billions and billions of gallons of water that have flowed out from the earth into that spring. And the sin we have committed is we've looked at that spring and all of that abundance, and we've gone, I don't want it. I don't need it. And we turn our back on the God who is this spring of water to do our second sin, to walk out into the wilderness and to go out into the wilderness in search of water. And here's the thing. We are going in search of water on our terms. And we get out there and we think, oh, I think this will provide for me. And we start digging in the dirt and we dig a small little hole in the dirt and stick our nose down in it and sniff. And we go, smells like water. Boy, maybe, maybe this is the source of water that I need. And we dig a little more, and we get down in there, and eventually we stick our own lips into the bottom of this broken nothing and try and suck water out of it. This is the picture of Jeremiah 2.13. Folks, notice how God says it. 
my people have committed two sins. That's all of us. We've all said to God, I don't need life on your terms. I want life on my terms. What is a fool? A fool is someone who relies on their own heart, trusts themselves to know, I know how to get life on my terms. And to do that, we have to forsake God, and we go out and we start searching for life. And we're all looking for life on our terms. Third pearl comes out of Matthew 6.24. Out of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that no man can serve two masters. It's noticed that Jesus is the one who makes it binary. It's one or the other. That's what it means to be binary. It's either a zero or a one. It's one or the other. It's not 27 different options. There are not 27 masters. There's only two. And Jesus points this out. You have master number one. We'll put that up there. He says there's, you cannot serve two. So here's what Jesus says is true. If you love master number one, you will hate master number two. And then he does the opposite. If you are devoted to master number two, you will despise master number three. Or uh, three. Here I, yeah. so, so much for binary. There it goes. No. For master number one. You love one, you hate the other. You're devoted to one, you despise the other. And then he ends with, you cannot serve God and mammon. And we all go, who's he? We're not sure who mammon is. And we all tend to think this was a statement of Jesus about money. And yes, this is a statement about money, but money is merely an instrument used by human beings. Because here's my interpretation. The two masters are this, either you or God. There aren't going to be any other masters. You will either be master of yourself or God will be master of you. And here's what's fascinating. Jesus says that if you trust yourself, if you have forsaken me and you're digging your own cistern, you've made yourself master, you love yourself. And if you love yourself, here's what is true. You hate God. No, that's harsh. I think, no, 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 I, I don't hate God. Well, the question comes back to who do you trust? Because you're not going to, tr- you, you will not trust that which you hate. You will trust that which you love. And then Jesus' contrast to that is if you're devoted to God, and here's what is so fascinating, then what will be your view of yourself? And he uses a very strong word. And we go, no, wait a minute. Because there is, Satan will twist anything, and he'll get us to to not see ourselves as we truly are, as image bearers of God, with incredible significance and, and, and due of honor as being an image bearer of God. But Jesus' strong words here is, is that when it comes to trusting yourself, if you don't trust yourself, you have to say, I don't trust me. 
that if it's left to me, I'll mess it up. That if I think I know what's best, I'll make a, I'll, I'll make a hash of it. See, it's interesting. Proverbs says that a man's folly ruins his life. You know what foolishness does to you? It ruins your life. And all we got to do is look around our planet and our own families and with our friends and go, you know, there are a lot of people that have really screwed up their lives. They've really messed up their lives. I wonder how that happened. Well, from the scripture, there's no need to wonder anymore. It is merely an example of a person living out the reality that they trust themselves. Now, this is amazing. So how does God deal with this? You go back to the garden and Adam and Eve decide to trust themselves and not God, and they fall. And this is where that, that, that awful word sin comes in. Our folly is what leads us to sin. And what does God do? He comes in pursuit of them. And he asks where they are. And Adam, in the midst of hiding, says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God's next question is, who told you you were naked? Notice that God doesn't go splat and smash him into the ground and turn to Gabriel and go, well, the alpha test didn't work too well. Let's go on to beta now. He's not about trying to, to redo this thing. He is after this, and I am growing more and more convinced that God is at work in your life to wean you off of trusting yourselves. See, this is Pentecost. On Pentecost, God poured out his spirit on his people. We got all of God. Thanks to Pentecost. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit abide in us by the gracious gift of God. We got all of him. The question is, how much of us did he get? And the answer to that is, he didn't get all of us. Because we have this real propensity to trust ourselves. And I am convinced that the work of God in every one of your lives is a work of getting you to a point where you will stop trusting yourself. You will repent of believing that you would know best to turn back to God and trust him. Without faith, without trust, it is impossible to please God. It is the focus of what God is doing in our midst. So there's my introduction. (laughs) Isn't that fun and exciting? Yes. So now we come to this, human experience. What is it like living in a world of fools? And so I have a little illustration that I want to put to this, and that is this. We people were designed by God for relationship with one another. We were built to be loved, and to love. It is why it doesn't matter what culture you go to, whatever you're dealing with, 
People want to be loved, and they want to love. We want to be in relationship. But what is true, by the way, we are in this relationship, and the next slide, we'll pop that up there. I drew the triangle to say there is God. God is not absent from our midst. He is around us, by us, watching and hearing. He is over all and in all and through all around us. He's watching this. And the great philosophical question that all of us, by the way, have already answered. You might not have thought about your answer, but you've already answered is this. Is God good? Everybody has an answer to that. It's a fascinating one to think of and look at in your own life. Do I really believe God is good? By the way, it will have a lot to do with who you trust. Because if God is actually good, you'll trust him. But here's the problem. That as we have related to one another as fools, what do fools do? They sin against each other. And here's why. Because a fool is trying to dig their own cistern and get life on their terms. That when we get in relationship with each other, as I used to say in class, when you are relating with people, you have a binary thing to do. You either minister to people or you manipulate them. You either are looking out for their best interest or you're looking out for your own best interests. And so when we interact with people, we all face that choice. And guess what a fool does? They look out for their own best interests. And so in a relationship where you're looking out for your own best interests, things start to go sideways. I love how Larry Crabb describes a lot of adolescent types of romantic relationships. Because I've seen this for 45 years with high school kids. Because the majority of high school kids are fools. And they're going into the relationship with the intent of, I am going to get life from this person that I'm relating to. They will give me what God should be giving me, but I don't want it from God. I want it on my terms. And so Crabb described it as a relationship of two ticks and no dog. (laughs) Two bloodsuckers going at each other. Give me what I want. And they're going, well, I'll give you what you want if you will give me back what I want. And pretty soon, it will always come to the place, or most of the time come to the place, that they finally get fed up and realize, you're not going to give me what I want, and they break off the relationship. In a flurry of anger and, and resentment, we sin against each other. As evangelicals, we're really good at telling people about the gospel. And we love to go to Romans uh, 3 and say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, on this human experience thing, to the left, how many of you have sinned against somebody? Everybody's hand goes up. And what we don't tend to do is follow through. If that's true, then let's look to the other side of the equation. How many of you have been sinned against? Notice, it's all the same hands. It's like a classroom. It's everybody's raising the, you know, the same people raising their hands. It's true on both sides. We all know by experience what it is to sin against somebody. 
And we all understand and know what it is like to be sinned against. It is the human experience in a fallen world. Now, there's two things that happen when we sin against somebody. On the one side, the person who does the sinning is going to feel guilt. It is built into us that when we do wrong and we do not love well, that we will experience guilt. By the way, this is proportional to the offense. The worse the sin, the worse the possibility of guilt. So everybody knows guilt. And it's one of the things that we use when we preach the gospel. We talk to people about their sin and how in Christ on the cross, your guilt can be dealt with. But on the other side of the equation is this. When you are sinned against, you experience pain. You were built to be loved well. When you're not loved well, it hurts. Again, the level of pain is proportional to the offense. The worse the sin, the worse the pain. And you didn't get a choice in the matter of whether to have pain or guilt. So I come back to my opening question. What do you do with your pain? Now this is what leads me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul is speaking, and he says, uh, Brothers, we don't want you to be uh, unawares of our afflictions which came on us in Asia. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. And I'm going to stop there a minute because I'm going to finish it in a second. We all think of Paul as this victorious Christian who never struggled, didn't have any real bad issues. He's not like us. Truth of the matter is, he was up against it. And he's saying to his Corinthian uh, believers, Folks, I want you to know how bad it was. It was so bad that it was a burden that was excessive to us. It was beyond our strength. I couldn't deal with it. In fact, I despaired of living. And he felt within himself the sentence of death. He wanted to die. I've got a theory on this. You read on in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that five times he received 39 lashes. And he says that statement there in 2 Corinthians like it's, he's at the grocery store and I bought cereal. Five times I received 39 lashes. The Romans, as a form of punishment, would take a person, bind their hands, strap them to a post that was only about this high, bend them over, take their clothing off their back, and have two men stand on either side of the person. Each of the men had a cat of nine tails, a small whip with nine lashes, and at the end would be small pieces of bone or glass, and they would alternate. One would hit this way and rip across the back, one this way, and they would do that 39 times. The reason they stopped at 39 is the Romans were experts on torture, They knew that once you got to 40, the chances of survival diminished quickly. They didn't want to kill the person. They wanted to inflict the maximum pain. 
Any of you ever smashed your thumb in the door of a car? Somebody's done that? Do you remember knowing what it was like to smash your thumb in a door before you did it? It was theoretical. Yeah, that looks painful. Then when you actually did it, you go, whoa, I am never letting that happen again. And you go, you, you go to such extremes to avoid getting your fingers or thumbs anywhere near the door because now you know what it feels like. Before it was theory, now it's experience. Can you imagine what was going through Paul's mind the fourth time he was going to get 39 lashes? And I read those words and I go, I think that sounds like what I would be thinking the fourth or fifth time that's happening to me. I can see me saying to God, God, I'd rather just die. Please, just let me die. I don't want to go through that pain again. And then Paul, in this last little phrase, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. And then he says this, in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. Whoops. There it is again. This issue of who do I trust? This verse has changed my theology on suffering. Let's go back to the illustration. Next slide. We could. We sin against people. God's watching. God's involved in it. And we all ask, God, I thought you loved me. Why didn't you stop this? And Paul says that God permits this so that you would not trust yourselves, but God who raises the dead. Now, I want to talk on the side of pain because in the midst of your pain, you face a choice. What will you do with your pain? Will you take it to God and call on God and ask God to minister to you and to deal with your pain? Or do you go, well, if God loved me, he wouldn't have allowed that to happen. So I don't trust God. That means I have to deal with my pain on my terms. Folks, every human being has that choice. What do I do with my pain? Will I trust God with it or will I trust myself to deal with it? By the way, that same question of trust is the exact same on the other side with guilt. Will you trust God with your guilt or do you have to deal with your guilt? Who do you trust? And what I have observed is there are five major ways that people choose to deal with their pain on their own terms. And by the way, these ways of dealing with pain on your own terms are the exact same ways that people deal with their guilt on their own terms. Number one, denial. When we get hurt, some people say, well, the way I deal with my pain is I deny it. And a great example of that is the Black Knight in Monty Python's In Search of the Holy Grail. <laughs> he and the White Knight are having the fight, and the Black Knight 
gets his arm cut off, and what does he say? It's merely a flesh wound. And we all laugh because it is an assault upon the logic that that is a horrendous wound. Blood is spurting out of your arm. Your arm's gone. That's not a flesh wound. But we laugh because I know how he deals with his pain. He denies it. It doesn't hurt. I can't tell you the number of kids I've worked with over the years coming out of divorced homes. When you ask them about it, and they'll go, yeah, it, it was difficult, but, you know, I, I got through it, and I'm, I'm good. And I go, I know how you deal with your pain. You deny that it hurts. Because the reality is that is incredibly painful. A second way that we think we can deal with our pain is shame. Now, by the way, all of you will use one or two of these. Um, I don't think we all go to all five of them. We have, we're smart enough to go, we watched somebody in denial and we went, that, that's stupid. You know, denying the pain doesn't deal with it. I know much better what the issue is, and it's to blame me. I'm the cause of the pain. Again, kids coming out of divorce homes, I've, scores and scores have told me, my parents divorced because it was my fault. Really? When you were five and six years old, you were the cause of your parents getting getting divorced. Wow. Do you see what that does? Who does it put in control? I know this very well because, by the way, that's me. That's how I deal with my pain. I beat myself up. It's my fault. And Susie says to me, why are you beating yourself up? And I'm going, because if I can figure out the right thing to do all of the time, I won't get hurt. And she said to me, how'd that work out for Jesus? He got everything right. Because we shame ourselves because it puts us back in the driver's seat. I'm in control. And if I can figure out what to do, then I can stop the pain. Third, blame. This is where the whole victimhood thing comes in. I'm a victim. It is so amazing that many times the very thing that people do to hurt other people is something that happened to them. And this is where the victim mentality gets you to the point, because I was hurt and dealt with this way, I am going to hurt others the same. I'm going to get even. There's an overlap here with the next one. But it comes out of a victim mentality. Fourth, revenge. We have a proverb that says revenge is sweet. And so we think, wow, if I can enact revenge, that will deal with my pain. Because revenge, and we have lots of Western literature that deals with this. The man in the iron mask. And the horrendous evil done to them by getting revenge, he could make himself well. The problem is this. Getting revenge makes you no different than the person who hurt you. You're doing the same thing to them that they did to you. It doesn't deal with your pain. And fourth, fifth, I mean, is we medicate. Uh, I've just finished reading a book that's fascinating, challenging my thinking, called Chasing the Scream. 
It's about the war on drugs in America. And the guy makes a very interesting uh, point in the thing. He said, the major cause of addiction to alcohol and drugs is some hugely damaging event in the life of the person. They medicate to deal with the pain. And so, give me the medication, stop the pain. Here's the thing about medicating. Does it solve the issue of your pain? No, it masks it. And as soon as the medication wears off, you're back in pain. Here's what's true. In all five of these, none of these deal with the pain. But they keep us in control. Which is fascinating. We are more determined to stay in control than to sit in our pain. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Pain convinces us we are not in control. It is the demonstration of the fact that I am not God. I am not in control. And so we scramble immediately to regain control. And what would it look like to take my pain to God? I could speak for another 40 to 50 minutes on that topic alone, but I do want to leave you with this. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all compassion and comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. When we are sinned against, the God of the universe is not absent. It is an opportunity for all of us to go, God, I hurt. I'm in pain. Lord, would you deal with my pain? Isaiah says that Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. He longs to deal with your pain. And to bind it up as much as he does to deal with your guilt. Isaiah says that by his wounds we have been healed. You know, the the final healing is coming when Jesus comes back. Where every tear will be wiped away. It will all be done. But in the meantime, it is not just... It's a bummer that happened to you. Suck it up and wait until Jesus comes. God is going. Will you trust me? He is the God who raises the dead. Who do you trust with your pain? You know, we live in a fallen world. With a world that is growing in the amount of pain. And it is a world without hope. And in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, by the way, that the comfort that God gives you will be the very comfort that you can offer to others. It's an interesting um, um, transference there. You will not have the resources to help people with their pain until you allow God in his love to minister 
to you in your pain. And unfortunately, one of my observations about we evangelicals is um, I, I, I see on the whole, I don't see a great deal of comfort offered to our world. I see a lot of judgment. I see a lot of standing on this is right and wrong. But the compassion and the comfort to address our world in its pain is hugely important for the gospel. And our desire is that all of us would come to that point and go, I am not going to trust myself with my pain. I'm going to trust the creator of the universe who raises the dead to minister to me in my pain. You want to see miracles? Go to God. Brian, would you bring the team back up? I went a little long. I apologize. But I do want to say this. We have this opportunity every week to partake in the table. And Jesus told us that we are to partake of this in remembrance of him. And this is a table of the provision of God to us. Provision for our guilt and for our pain. Is God good? He does provide. He does protect. And we get the opportunity each week to remember, as Chris says, that what he has done to minister to us, that we come to this table to receive his grace. At the vineyard, the table is open to any from whatever church who is a follower of Jesus. So we invite you as we worship together.